Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. There's a myth that you can cook a piece of shrimp by firing it from an air cannon through several rings of fire. When Adam Savage heard this, he rolled up his sleeves. 
I lined up four sword forges that were at over, I think, 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, and we fired the shrimp through all four of them, exposing it for as long as we possibly could to an extremely high temperature. So the question is, does it actually work? We'll find out later on the show when we sit down with professional MythBuster Adam Savage. But first, we're heading over to Paris. Every year, something curious happens in a supermarket there, something that caught the eye of Rebecca Rossman, an American journalist who's lived in France for nearly a decade. She brings us her report. I'm going to let you in on a secret about one of the greatest food stores in France. It's a grocery chain called Picard. Picard is a lifesaver. When I first moved here, I married into a very old French family. And it was like, Picard, Picard, Picard. You won't believe how good Picard is. This is David Porata. He's a Canadian-American who has been living in France for 16 years. The prices are fair. The selection is really good. (laughs) I come at least once a week. Maybe you're thinking that Picard is famous for having the best bread, the finest cheeses. But walk into any of the 900 locations in France, and all you'll see are giant freezers. That's what Picard does. It only sells frozen food. I try to come to Picard every two weeks or so to pick up some frozen food. It helps me when I don't have time to shop or when I get home late from work. Yes, turns out even the French are into convenience. Whether it's flavor enhancers like frozen seafood stock for bouillabaisse or ready-made meals like boeuf bourguignon on a bed of mashed potatoes. And sometimes you can even get American food. It's that time of year again. Every year Picard does an American week, but since French people don't really know what American cuisine is, they just call it crazy America, and then they just make up a bunch of shit that they think is American, like green hamburger. This is a TikTok from Sarah Donnelly, an American comedian living in Paris. She's talking about a promotion Picard runs every year called America Week. During the promotion, you can buy limited edition American-style products. Onion rings, hot dogs. But some of these products are things I've never seen in my life. And I was raised in the Midwest, the home of fluffernutter sandwiches. But this, no. Popcorn ice cream, no. Popcorn, yes. Popcorn ice cream, no. Just stop combining things. As much as I love Picard, I have to say, Sarah has a point about these mashup products. Caramel popcorn ice cream. Donuts made of ground-up potatoes. This year, they did a croque-monsieur, the classic French sandwich. But instead of bread, the ham and cheese were sandwiched between two American-style pancakes. Picard shopper Camille Ray actually tried this pancake croque-monsieur concoction. Camille describes herself as a Picard geek. Yeah, I am. (laughs) Surprisingly... There are many people like me, I've come to find out. She likes to stock up on the America Week products every year, especially things like cinnamon rolls and burgers. But she doesn't necessarily think they're an accurate portrayal of American food. I think they definitely reflect the junk food aspect of it. I don't think they reflect everything of American food, because how could they? (laughs) Pancake cook messieurs and popcorn ice cream don't resemble anything I recognize as American food. And it made me wonder, is this really what American food looks like in the eyes of the French? American cuisine. C'est quoi? 
I asked some of my friends in Paris about what they think American food means. And the first thing my friend Pierre told me was a small chain called Happy Days Diner, or HD Diner for short. On the menu, things like Grandma Onion Rings or BBQ Burger. I don't know, I feel like America itself has capitalized a lot on that specific aesthetic, don't you think? In other words, maybe we're responsible for this, we Americans, who for decades through our TV and movies have been selling the idea of milkshakes with a cherry on top. Yummy. You think I can have a sip of that? I gotta know what a $5 shake tastes like. Greasy spoons with American cheese top sliders, bottomless coffee, hash browns, and eggs any style. More coffee, hon? Yeah, just keep it coming, please. Sure thing. I think a lot of Europeans or people in general have always thought, oh, American food is very bad. People drink horrible coffee. I'm like, uh, have you been back recently? But you know, that food is not making it back to France. This is David Leibovitz, a pastry chef and cookbook author. Over his nearly 20 years as an expat in Paris, he's seen the evolution of American food here. Because when I moved to Paris... I used to wonder, like, why couldn't you get a good hamburger? Because they have amazing bread, they have very good beef, but now there are hamburger places everywhere. And also American desserts, um, like you're starting to see cake, like late multi-layer cakes. There's a bakery called the French Bastards. And I was in there the other day and they had a, like a slice of vanilla cake, like three layers. Even though he can finally get a gourmet burger in Paris, David has a place in his heart for Picard. He embraces it as a sort of French rite of passage. After I got my French passport, I was like, you know what? I need to get a Picard fidelity card. And so I finally got one. So now I'm very French. David says he once saved Christmas dinner with a frozen stuffed duck from Picard. And he swears by the frozen raspberries when fresh are unavailable. He's even found himself wandering the frozen aisles during America week. The first thing I got, was a pastrami sandwich. It was on a pretzel, soft pretzel, pastrami sandwich with arugula. Wouldn't fly in a lot of American cities, but in New York, I'd be like, what? But it looked really good, so I bought it, put it in the microwave, heated it up. Uh, rule number one, never put like salad greens in the microwave. <laughs> um, rule number two, if you're going to make a pastrami sandwich, it needs more than one thin slice of pastrami. It needs at least 7 to 15. He's not a fan of everything America Week has to offer. But David has a theory about what Picard is trying to do here. The last Hello America festival, they were also calling it Crazy America. Americans were very um, individualistic. People dye their hair green and, you know, pierce their noses and have tattoos on their faces. So all the models and the ads showed these people with, you know, dyed hair and they were eating hamburgers with like charcoal buns. You know? <laughs> so it was meant to be fun because, you know, one of the things people I think admire about Americans is that we're fun. We're really good at having fun. And yet, fun can also mean cliché. It can feel a little insulting because they're sort of presenting not the best of America, shall we say. Um, you know, we have a lot of multicultural 
food that's just wonderful in America, but they're selling it to a French audience of young people that are sort of looking for the cliche in a way. Um, and I don't mean that as a as an insult. Um, it's like French people say to me, oh, we went to Las Vegas. I'm like, why? But it's something that's very American. Maybe David's right that Picard thinks its customers just want a slice of America, even if it's a slice of America that we don't necessarily define ourselves by. At Picard's headquarters in southwest Paris, I spoke to Delphine Courtier. She's Picard's product director, a.k.a. the woman behind America Week. Delphine's experience with American food goes back to a summer she spent in the U.S. when she was 13 years old. She actually worked as a waitress at a fast food restaurant in West Virginia. And I served hamburgers and hot dogs, which were not at all like what we had in France. It was served in this good brioche bun and the chili sauce. There was this chili sauce on top and it was so good. Still, Delphine didn't feel confined by her experience of American food, nor by any rules of authenticity. Glass saveur popcorn, so popcorn-flavored ice cream. Uh, I've never tasted this in America. In the United States, they eat a lot of popcorn, and we want to have a fairly complete range of products, from starters to desserts. So in addition to cookies or brownies and things like that, what else could we offer? Because we know that ice cream is something that is also popular in the United States, we did a mix, saying, why not make popcorn ice cream? That's it. It's really a creation and imagination based on American eating habits. The more I thought about it, David Leibovitz is right. This idea of American food may be a bit cliche, but maybe that's what people want. And if I'm really being honest, when I think of the American food cravings I grew up with, I think of a grilled cheese made by my mom with Kraft American and lots of butter. And a lot of these Picard products give a similar nostalgia. If the idea is comfort with a double side of creativity, they totally succeed. And suddenly, I'm wondering if I should pick up some popcorn ice cream. That was journalist Rebecca Rossman with additional reporting by Judith Shetri and Sarah Clapp. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television and author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, rumor has it um, that you had a famous moment on the Today Show where you essentially set um, the set on fire. Is that true? No, I didn't set the set on fire. I set the dish I was cooking on fire. I was doing a cookbook segment, right? And then the folks on the Today Show choose the recipe to make. Mm -hmm. So I was doing like the Rice Krispies treats kind of thing, which was, I don't know why. Hmm. So I was on the Today Show and I was stirring the marshmallow stuff. And then to turn off the burner on the Today Show, it's clockwise, not counterclockwise for some reason. So I turned it up essentially to 11, you know, and all of a sudden you see smoke just starting to waft in from the right side of the screen. And so they moved the camera over to the left, but it started really smoking because it was on high heat and marshmallows, you know, obviously yeah, starts to sugar. burn. So Car- a, a lot of smoke. And then the host started, you know, coughing. He said, I, I think it's on fire. <laughs> so I had to stop, take the Dutch oven off, put it in the sink. Right. And then we went to the next recipe. The funny part, afterwards, someone said, with well, a producer would like to see you. And I thought this is like, okay, 
we've enjoyed you being on the Today Show all these years. Never again. Never again. Never more. She said, that was my favorite segment of all time. Oh, isn't that nice? Because it was entertaining, you know? It was funny. And we had a laugh, and and we just kept going. Anyway, you had an example with Julia on Good Morning America. She cut herself, right? It wasn't on Good Morning America. I think it was Colorado with Jacques Pepin. And the backstory is, from my understanding, that she had a bit of a crush on him. I mean, who didn't, right? So even before they started recording, she cut herself badly. And then they didn't have time to go to the hospital or anything. So they bandaged her up, and it was very, very obvious. And they went on air anyway. (laughs) And they start the show, and Julia's, you know, the host says, okay, let's get going. And then she turns to Julia and says, well, you know, are you going to start? And Julia said, well, no, no, I'll let Jock do it. It's okay. (laughs) But the whole time she had this bandaged finger, Uh and Jock did the whole recipe. That is what Dan Aykroyd based his whole piece, the Saturday Night Live thing on. I didn't know that. It didn't get that far with the blood spurting all over the place. But as I'm sure I've told you, Julia had a copy of that, and she would show it at dinner parties. She loved it. Yeah, I loved it. It was my favorite TV appearance ever. It was so well done. So, yeah. All right. Okay. Let's take your call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Adolf Lopez. I'm calling from New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, I love New Orleans. You lucky, <laughs> lucky man. How can we help you today? I have joined in the last few years the whole sheet pan craze. I'll do things like roast chicken or roast vegetables and whatnot. And I even picked up that nice Quizapro sheet pan that's a nonstick, and it's really wonderful. But what I have found is that maybe because the edges are so short, maybe because I'm using the oven on with the fan in it, things that are on the edges cook quicker than the things that are in the middle, even so much as to possibly burn things that are on the outside, and you may want more cooking on the inside. So I was just wondering, just sheet pan technology, how you use it, things like that. That's all very interesting. When you said the fan, do you mean you use convection heat or just regular heat? Convection. You know, that's interesting because that's supposed to equalize the heat in an oven. You might, just for the heck of it, not use the convection mode and just use regular roasting mode. Um, You don't stir your vegetables at all while they're cooking? I do, but uh, it seems that everything on the edges is still going to cook faster, even possibly burn, so I push it in from the edges a little bit. And you're using oil in the vegetables as well? Yeah. I would stop using the convection and pull them out a couple of times and stir them and just move them around. And really, moving them around so now they're in a different part of the oven should prevent the burning at the edges. I don't know. Chris, do you have any thoughts about this? What what uh, oven rack is the uh, baking sheet on? Lower, middle, high? Well, I, I have tried various positions. The last time on the upper rack, uh, the sheet pan, I had cauliflower and onion. And the cauliflower was perfect. But the onions that were in there, even though they were cut a little bit larger, just got overdone and in some places charred. That's a separate issue. I mean, it's a good issue to talk about. I mean, cauliflower is going to cook differently. Onions onions will burn faster than anything else. Because they put. got such a high sugar content. Yeah. So that you have to put the onions in later. You can't put the onions in at the same time as the cauliflower. Or if you had root vegetables like carrots or something. Here, I would never use a bottom rack. I would not do two things at once. At least try it that way. Middle rack, mm-hmm. rotate it, you know, halfway through cooking. As Sarah said, you would want to, you know, toss the vegetables at least once. And this Queasy Pro sheet is really heavy duty. Yeah, it doesn't warp. It doesn't go whack, you know. Is it dark, medium, or light colored? Medium to light color. I use cheap half-baking sheets that are very light-colored, and they seem to work pretty well. Just go buy a standard, you know, like 
a restaurant supply house half-baking sheet. You can get them pretty cheaply. Just try a different sheet to see if that makes any difference. But otherwise, I would just, you know, use a middle rack, and you shouldn't have a problem. They're all in one layer, I assume, right? You don't have any... Yes. Okay, so they're spread Mm -hmm. out evenly. It's not, you know, let's say you got a bunch of carrots. Maybe they're not in one layer. I could see stuff at the edges burning and stuff in the middle steaming. So I think you always want to start with everything in one layer because that will help them to cook more evenly. What do you think about those recipes that they'll uh, say do a roast chicken, surround it with vegetables, things like that, that combination on a sheet? Well, as long as the timing is accurate. But generally the vegetables in that case, they're added later because the Mm. chicken will take longer. When I roast vegetables, I pop them in any time an hour before and take them out Mm. when they're just beginning to brown and park them on the counter because you can always pop them back in and finish them while everything else is resting. They don't diminish in flavor at all. So that's a way to manage all the stuff in your house. Okay. All right. Is that your last word? All right. Yes. All right. Thanks for calling. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question for us, we're always here to help. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, My name is Marta. How can we help you? Well, I'm calling from Newfoundland. Uh, We moved here about a year ago after 22 years in New York City. Uh, We have a wonderful neighbor. I'm going to give him a shout out. He's called Gordon Yetman. Mm -hmm. And he brings us lots of local delicacies like salt cod and mousse, which I cooked like venison. And that turned out really well. His latest gift is a wild duck. And I have never cooked a wild duck before. I know about farm ducks, and I'm scared my wild duck is going to turn out to be dry and tough. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about what to do with it. Sure. I have friends who go duck hunting. There are two kinds Mm -hmm. of ducks. There are ducks that taste fishy and ducks that don't taste fishy, so I don't know which kind you have. The problem is with a wild duck, it's going to be much leaner than a farm-raised duck. So I have two suggestions. One is... I would cook the breasts separately from the legs. The same ah. thing I would do like with rabbit or something. So I, I would probably cook the breasts in a skillet just to brown and then finish them in sort of a low oven. But I think the rest of the carcass, the legs, I would cook a long time, really roast them and make sure you really thoroughly cook them to a much higher temperature. So the breast I would cook to medium rare, but I would fully cook mm-hmm. the legs like you would cook chicken legs, for example, I would cook to, you know, 190 degrees or something. I would really cook it because it's going to be lean. If you have a lot of fat, is a lot of fat under the skin. The other trick I've used, and this is not wild duck, is I simmer them in water for like half an hour and then let Mm -hmm. them dry, then roast them. And that will get rid of a lot of that fat layer. You're referring to the legs, not the breast. No, the whole duck. Oh, the whole duck. Or a goose. I would simmer in water for like 20 minutes, half an hour. That'll get rid of a lot of the fat, if, if there's a lot of fat, and then I would dry it and then go ahead and roast it. But I think cooking the breast separately from the legs makes a lot of sense. Marta, can I ask you a question? Do you think you could ask your neighbor what the neighbor thinks this duck's diet was? Because that really does influence the um, flavor. I know there are three types of duck. We're right on the sea. Um, we have sea ducks. We have eiders. 
black ducks and common magenzas. Um, I guess they're eating salty, seawatery marine life of some kind. Yeah, they probably will have a bit of a fishy taste. Yeah. I agree with Chris. Separate the breast from the leg thighs and cook the leg thighs separately. But maybe in that case, you might want to braise the leg thighs with some flavorful ingredients because the duck is going to taste a bit fishy. So you might want to sort of tamp that down with some strong flavors. Yeah. That's a great thought. Just one last question on this. Would you think about brining at all or forget that and just go straight to your suggestions? If you're going to cook the breast to medium rare, I don't think you need to brine it. Brining is good for turkey or chicken when you're going to cook it to a higher temperature. No. I agree with Sarah. Just braise it low and slow for a long time. The leg thigh. Yeah. And it'll be – the leg is darker meat and when it is thoroughly cooked, it'll – it was nice and lubricated anyway. It's not the legs that are the problem. It's always the breast – it's like a turkey or chicken breast or pork where it's too lean and it's white meat that you have the big problem. Okay, that's great. Please let us know how it all turns out. Oh, we absolutely will. Thank you so much. It was great to be a part of the show. So wait, wait I got to ask. So you moved to Newfoundland a year ago. So what was that move like? That's a pretty big difference. Yeah, well, we got in a, a U-Haul truck and we, yeah. drove, we drove from New York. And uh, we've been transitioning a little bit this year, but by the end of this year, we'll be living there pretty much permanently. And it's wonderful, just a most beautiful, exhilarating and relaxing place. Hmm. We love being close to nature. And after all those years in Manhattan, it's it's just a new adventure. We're both in our early 60s. And if we don't have a crazy adventure now, we're never going to. Excellent. Good for you. We take visitors, so uh, please feel free to come and see us. All right. Thanks, Marta. Yeah, good luck with the move. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, can a voice really shatter a wine glass? Adam Savage puts that to the test right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, 
which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. For over a decade, you could turn on the Discovery Channel and heed this warning. It may not look like it, but we're professionals. Do us a favor. Don't try this at home. Whoa! Those experts were Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman, hosts of the show Mythbusters, where no outlandish claim or tall tale was safe from their rigorous scientific testing. Adam Savage joins me now to recall some of his wackier experiments, ones where food and science collided head-on. Adam, welcome to Mill Street. Ah, thank you so much for having me on, sir. So, Mythbusters, 14 years, almost 300 episodes. What was the starting premise of the show? The starting premise was answering the most absurd questions using the best science we could bring to bear to the situation. So, does buttered toast always land butter side down. <laughs> like, who stays up at night thinking about this one? Well, I mean, to me, the absurdity of the simplicity of that question made it, the second it got suggested, I knew we were going to test it. 
because that is just the perfect thing to try and bring a rigorous testing model to. How many pieces of toast are you going to flip off? And from where? From what height? We built a machine that, that kept knocking pieces of toast off the table until we had some statistics about it. I do believe that what we found was that unbuttered toast did a, a single flip from the table height, but the increased weight of the butter changed the dynamics of how many times it rotated on its way to the ground. I mean, what a gr what a great career. Um, <laughs> can a voice shatter a wine glass? Absolutely. And by the way, Mythbusters was the very first program ever to do that for real on television. Do bullets slow down underwater so they can't hurt you? Spectacularly so. In fact, they slow down more the faster they're going, specifically because of the way the physics of water work in relation to objects hitting it at speed. Can the suction from a vacuum cleaner lift a car? Uh, yes, indeed it can. Just barely, but yes. Okay. Um, now, here, here's a myth that I, I found mysterious. Can you escape prison with only a jar of salsa? <laughs> And, yeah. and you did test it, and you'd have to live for, I think, about 38 years for this to work. But you wanted to explain the concept. Well, we were, we were using the acidic content of salsa to increase the speed at which the steel or iron bars of a prison cell might be eaten through. And you're right, it would have taken decades to go with just straight salsa. We added electricity to the mix uh, and got a, a more successful result. We actually, at one point, we got an email from a prison guard who said, you're not helping me do my job by suggesting these <laughs> weird things to do with food to escape. Well, I think the, the number was eight one thousandths of an inch per 110 days. Yeah, I think the continents move faster than that. Yeah, I think Pangea <laughs> came apart in, in less time. Um, okay, biscuit bazooka, so you have a dough, one of those roll-up supermarket things, a biscuit dough, will it explode in a hot car? And I think you found that it could. We did find that it could. That was, a, that was such an early story for us. And we had to get the inside of a car up to, you know, like 180 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really easy in a hot climate on a sunny day, much more difficult in foggy San Francisco. <laughs> uh, and it took us hours and hours and hours using space heaters to get the interior of our car to the correct temperature. Uh, but yes, we not only found that the, that the biscuit would explode in a hot car, but if it hit you in the back of the head, the smack with the boom, with the sound could lead you to believe that perhaps somebody had shot something at you. So how do you build an air compression cannon? This was for the uh, chicken gun. H how do you think about building something like that? Uh, yeah, well, we just, <laughs> oh my gosh, we took a large air tank and we found a pressure valve that was 12 inches in diameter and we welded the two things together until we felt like they wouldn't fail. You know, we did a lot of crazy stuff in the early days of the show. I'm really glad we survived it all. And the purpose of that was was what again? Oh well, there's this yeah, there's this wonderful story about them using chickens fired at airplane windshields to test whether or not they could survive a bird strike, hmm. and so they would fire these chickens at hundreds of miles per hour. And uh, some government wanted to try the U.S.'s version of this, and they found that the chickens they were firing were going right through the windshield, right through the fuselage of the planes they were <laughs> testing. And when they asked the U.S. compatriots why they were getting these results, the answer was, you should be thawing your chickens. <laughs> and so it actually turns out there's a huge difference between a thawed and a frozen chicken at that speed.
Did you, when you were in high school and college, were you an engineer? You know, I was not a serious student in high school, and I I didn't really go to college. That being said, the teachers I gravitated towards were of two types, and this will make you laugh. One was the drama teachers, and the other was the science teachers. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I, I like to joke that my chemistry teacher, Dr. Zimopoulos, so appreciated the zeal with which I had questions about the physics of chemistry that I believe I squeaked by with a C in that class <laughs> because I loved physics so much. So, you know, in the food world, we're always talking about tenderizing meat and should you marinate it or should you whack it with a fork? You thought you'd test a different methodology, <laughs> which is is rather curious. So what did you do? Well, well, we actually put meat in freezer bags and we put it in a barrel and we put explosives in the barrel and we used the shockwave from the explosion to tenderize the meat. And um we actually found that there were some specific parameters under which explosives genuinely did make the meat more tender. Why didn't it just completely shred the meat? You just had to use the right distance from the explosion or That's the right amount of TNT? That's or? precisely correct. Yeah, there is a sweet spot, right? If you're too close to the explosion, it's going to tear it to pieces. If you're too far, the shockwave uh, will have lost all of its impetus. But the really nice thing about a shockwave is it goes through uh, a physical body, uh, like muscle tissue, and it just, if you got it at the right distance, it just moves every cell one tiny instance away from its neighbor, and it does this in sequence, and you end up sort of getting this wonderful tearing throughout the entire body of the meat. Swimming in (laughs) swimming in serve versus water. Now, why would anybody think you could move more quickly in a more viscous, denser liquid? Well, so no, the myth is that if you're trying to swim a certain distance in syrup, that while the thicker material slows you down, uh, I think we all understand the physics of that. The thicker material gives your hands more to push off of, and that that second fact cancels the first fact, and thus the myth is that you can swim just as fast in syrup as in water. And this is one of my favorite stories we did early on, because this is one in which I knew that the finale had to be that we brought in an Olympic swimmer to swim in a vat of goo. Like, nothing's funnier than that to me. So I knew we brought in Nathan Adrian, a multiple award-winning swimmer. And I don't know if you've ever, I had never been around a real swimmer before. They're like gods. They're, you know, six and a half feet tall and about five feet wide. Uh, And he was wonderfully amiable in getting in our vat of goo and swimming. But the funny thing was, as an Olympic swimmer, his job is to get into a pool, put his head down and follow the black line at the bottom of the pool as fast as he can. We put him in this trough we'd dug full of guar gum syrup, and he couldn't see, and it was cold, and he was pinballing off the sides because this was not his regular gig. And it turned out that me, the generalist, who is so far from an athlete, um, I was better at consistently swimming than our Olympic swimmer. Because I I was a more adjustable animal. I had not trained for decades to swim in one particular way. So we asked him at the end, do you mind if we throw out your results? Because they're, they're inconsistent. He thought that was great. So I loved the wrinkle of bringing in what we thought was the ringer for the most objective possible test and finding that it actually wasn't. Okay, and the weirdest one, can you cook shrimp midair? Oh, you know... 
That came from a Japanese video of someone firing shrimp from an air cannon through a fireball with the idea that it would hit some drum at the end and land on a plate perfectly cooked. We, mm. we were totally clear at the beginning that this was not at all possible, that the time of exposure between the shrimp and the fireball was not nearly enough. But for me, the fun in that episode was what I designed to try and achieve it, which is I lined up four sword forges that were at over, I think, 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, and we fired the shrimp through all four of them, exposing it for as long as we possibly could to an extremely high temperature. The absurdity of that setup makes me so happy. <laughs> uh, and it totally didn't work. But uh, yeah, I just love the absurdity of all those sword forges and trying to cook shrimp with them. So give me some advice. I've spent most of my career testing things in the kitchen, figuring out the best way of making a brownie or roasting a turkey. From a scientific point of view, is there a, a right way or a good way to go about testing various factors? For example... In chocolate cake, you have different kinds of flour, different kinds of leaveners, different kinds of sugars, different baking times, different kinds of pans. Do you test one thing at a time? Can you test multiple factors at one time? Is there a methodology here that would be helpful to a non-scientist? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and the answer is that you really do want to change as little as you can from test to test. When you want to test whether or not using this pen or that pen is going to get you the right result, you want to make sure you don't change any of the other parameters to make sure that you are not comparing apples to oranges. And it's that classic thing that people are always saying when they're trying recipes. I didn't like this recipe, but I had swapped out four of the ingredients and it didn't come out great. And the answer is, right. that wasn't a test. <laughs> you didn't make the bloody recipe. I've, yeah, I've spent a lifetime dealing with it. So after all these years and these other shows you're doing, what is it you didn't expect from this career that you really treasure in some way? Actually, the most surprising and gratifying aspect of making the show for 14 years was that it taught me that I am an engineer and that I am a scientist, that those only somewhat have to do with education, but they are also personality traits of curiosity and questioning. Uh, and when Jamie and I started to actually travel around and meet real scientists and talk to them about their research, they treated us like peers, which we thought was really strange until we realized that this is actually how science works. You don't throw out the absurd ideas because there could be real gems in there. And the number of times we did something we thought was absurd only to come to really interesting data changed my whole understanding of how science actually works. Adam, next time I uh, have a problem around the house, I'm giving you a call. Thank you. <laughs> Chris, this is such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, man. I had a great time. That was Adam Savage. He hosted the show Mythbusters on the Discovery Channel and now hosts the YouTube channel Adam Savage's Tested. Science is based on proving theories with demonstrable facts. This is why science endures. If all of science were erased from memory, it would eventually be restored to the exact form that exists today. Facts simply don't change. When it comes to food, there are plenty of bogus theories, such as marinating tenderizes and flavors. The facts indicate, generally speaking, this is not true. Since most of us view cooking as more art than science, we go on marinating. The trick is to balance faith with facts to accept a foundation of solid science with the inspiration afforded by the art of good cooking. 
You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Kenji Lopez out dishes on Chicago's thin crust pizza. That's up after the break. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to talk about this week's recipe, Roman Cloud Bread. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. A few weeks ago, I was in the office in the kitchen, and I went by the table where we put out our food for tasting. And there was this, I don't know what to call it. It was sort of salad in a bread bowl, but it, but it wasn't the typical bread bowl. It was very thin, very odd-looking, but intriguing. So I was told this is a recipe you brought back from Rome. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Well, I did a similar double take. I was walking past the Vatican, and... I looked at a bakery, and in the window, there were these puffs. I don't know what else to call them. They were these bread puffs. And, you know, we've been to Italy many times now. I had never seen a bread like this in Italy. And so we went in, and we were told that they are Roman cloud bread, or in Italian, nuvola. And when we started talking to the owner of the bakery, Angelo Aragoni, 
He explained that this bakery has been in his family for about 100 years, and his grandfather, kind of by happy accident, created these cloud breads. He had some leftover dough, rolled it out thin, threw it in the oven, and instead of just baking up crisp like a cracker, it baked up puffy and like a cloud, hence the name. And they left it in for just a few minutes, but that was all it took to crisp. Now, it's very similar, if you can imagine, a massive pita bread. And when you bake pita bread, as you know, they puff up. But as soon as you take them out of the oven, they deflate. Not with Roman cloud breads. They, because they're allowed to crisp, they stay puffed. And I tried one, just kind of as is, and it was really delicious. You know, as soon as it comes out of the oven, they brush it with olive oil and sprinkle it with coarse salt, which of course makes it really delicious. And when I asked Mr. Aragone, what does one do with this other than just eat it like a cracker? He explained to me that it's actually a form of panzanella or bread salad. So what they often do is take a very large one and crack a hole in it and then fill it with salad and they put it at the center of the table. And then you just kind of chop into it and you get a little bit of bread and a little bit of salad and you just enjoy. And it was really such an amazingly different and delicious twist on what we think of as panzanella. It was really intriguing. In terms of baking, the reason it stays puffed is just stays in the oven longer to it really hardens? Yeah, I mean, these are rolled out so thin. It's a well-hydrated dough, which helps with the puffing. And it really cooks in, I think, about eight minutes. But that's just long enough to kind of set it in its puffed form. (laughs) And they come out and they stay that way. And they're really beautiful and unusual looking. And it helps that they're delicious too. So they cut with the top off or the side off and just fill it with salad? Cutting is probably not quite accurate because these things are so crisp and oddly shaped that you just have to kind of smash it a little little bit. You punch a hole in it, then you can start filling it with salad. And the pieces that fell on the counter from the <laughs> from punching the dough. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And for our salad, it was pretty much business as usual or anything unusual about Yeah, salad? you know, we talked to Mr. Aragoni and he told us what he likes. We kind of borrowed some of his ideas. But, you know, in general, he said anything goes. We like a nice lemon vinaigrette with some anchovies in there. You can leave those out if you don't want them. And we did, you know, some romaine, some arugula, some fennel, some pine nuts. And, of course, it's Italy. You have to have some Parmesan cheese. It's a really delicious salad right on its own. But then you throw it into the cloud bread, and the bread starts to soak up some of that dressing, which is really delicious. And the whole thing, it just makes such a great piece. You know, I'm starting to think that we know nothing about Italian cooking, because every time you or I go, we just you look in the window and you see something you never saw before. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. Roman cloud bread, like a penzanella, fill it with salad or whatever. It's great visually, and it's great on the palate. Jam, thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Roman cloud bread at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's see what's inspiring Kenji Lopez-Alt in the kitchen. Hey, Kenji, what's up? How's it going, Chris? You wrote, yet again for the New York Times, uh, mm-hmm. one of these definitive pieces on thin crust pizza, but not from Naples or not from New York, from Chicago. Right, right, right. Well, the Midwest, it's all over the Midwest, but yeah, uh, started in Chicago. So so they say, don't tell people in St. Louis that. So I'm going to have to ask, what does this mean, thin crust? Is this cracker-like, 
or this has nothing to do with the Neapolitan style, right? Well, it, you know, it, it all stands, you know, the, the people who created this pizza were originally Southern Italian immigrants. So there is, of course, some connection to it, um, as there is with all pizza. But, you know, when when you think of Chicago pizza, I think most people outside of Chicago think of deep dish. Right. But if you talk to anyone from Chicago, they're sort of, you know, their weekly pizza is the thin crust. And when we're saying thin crust, we're talking really, really thin, like the thickness of a, a saltine hmm. thin. So the idea behind it, you know, the history behind it is that it started in taverns in the south side of Chicago. Chicago in the 1940s, you know, factory workers and people working at the union stockyards between getting off work and going home, they would stop at the tavern for a beer. And so in the same way that, you know, some bars have popcorn or pretzels, some of these South Side Chicago uh, taverns started producing these really, really thin pizzas. And it's generally a round pizza, but it's cut into squares <laughs> instead of triangular <laughs> slices so that uh, one pizza could be shared among many people. So instead of grabbing a whole slice, you just grab a square or two and you can eat it on a napkin. So I like thin crust pizza, but I like the fact that like in Naples, the center's soggy, right? Right. The, the outside's crispy. Inside the crust at the edges, it's chewy. Right. It's got a lot of different things going on. This sounds like the entire crust is thin and cracker-like. The appeal of this is is what? Why should I fall in love with this? <laughs> it's different from most other pizzas. You know, it's extremely crispy, and so you know you don't have to you don't have to compare it and say one is you know Neapolitan is better or whatever. They're just very different things okay. that are difficult to to compare. Um, I think for a lot of people, you know, the appeal is you get that really nice um, ratio of toppings to cheese, and that topping in Chicago is almost always going to be sausage. You know, where most of the country pepperoni sort of the default meat topping in mm -hmm. Chicago um, because of the proximity to those union stockyards when this pizza was being created sausage is the default topping um, so you know I, I like it with sausage and hot jardinera you know the pickled vegetable uh, condiment that goes in Italian roast beef sandwiches so sausage and jardinera uh, mozzarella cheese or maybe a little sprinkle of Romano or or Parmesan and then the sauce is you know unlike a Neapolitan or New York sauce which is essentially just crushed tomatoes right. and salt. Um, a Chicago-style sauce is usually cooked. Cooked down. Um, so it'll have a dried oregano, maybe dried marjoram, garlic, you know, and, and it'll be cooked down a little bit more, tomato paste. So it'll have a kind of richer flavor to it. So in typical Kenji fashion, you, you fly out. You have a two-day, 12-stop <laughs> tour of Chicago and Milwaukee. So you did your homework. I did. So let's, let's start with the basic hydration. That is the amount of water right. compared to the weight of the flour. Now- I once made a pour-in-the-pan pizza that was 92% hydration level, uh -huh, uh -huh. But, but this is really low, like below 60%. And you want to also define what hydration means, by the way? Yeah. So when, when we're saying hydration, we're talking about baker's percentages. And essentially what it means is that if something is at 50% hydration, it means for every 100 grams of flour, you would have 50 grams of water. So it's a good way to sort of measure and scale your recipes. Uh, but you're right. You know, something like a, uh, a pan pizza or focaccia, something like that, where you have these really big puffy hole structure, you know, you might be as high as 80 or 90% hydration. You know, sourdough bread, for example, has a lot of water in it, and that's how you get those big bubbles inside. Um, whereas a Neapolitan or New York-style pizza dough, probably closer to between 57 and 65% or so. Um, and with Chicago pizza or Midwest pizza, it's more like 50% hydration, so much drier, more almost similar to like a bagel dough. The other thing that this style of dough has is a lot of fat in it. So that can be, you know, I've tried it with lard. I tried it with vegetable oil, corn oil, olive oil. It honestly works with almost any fat you want. So in my final recipe, I just landed on vegetable oil. Neapolitan pizza dough has no fat in it at all. New York dough might have a little bit of fat in it. Um, this 
Midwest style cracker crust dough has between 10 to 15% fat. So it's quite a bit of oil you're adding in there. And what Uh, about the other thing you talked about in the article was curing the dough. Right. I mean, this was a brand new technique for me. I mean, it, it was, it really was like, what? Like, what What do they do? So, I mean, the idea is you take your dough after it's cold fermented, you know, after it's risen in the refrigerator for a few days, um, you take it out, you roll it into a disc, and then you just leave it there. So, in, you know, most of these pizza restaurants that do it, they'll stick it in their walk-in refrigerator uncovered. Uh, and so, it, and, you know, by the time they take it out, it's got the texture of uh, sort of leather. So you can pick it up and kind of flop it around. So they call this curing the dough, right? Um, it was a technique that was created at a pizzeria called Pat's in the 70s. Um, but now a bunch of places do it. Um, and so I tested this at home, and it makes an incredible difference uh, as far as how crisp the dough gets and also how evenly it browns. Um, so the idea is like you, you let it cure overnight, and then the top side, which is the drier side, then becomes the bottom of your pizza. So you flip it over, you top it. Um, there's a few advantages here. So one of them is that even though you're starting with a relatively low hydration dough, 50%, the curing process, you actually end up losing a lot more moisture by the time you bake it, it's only around 25 to 30%, mm. which is very, very low. Um, and so that's how you get that sort of extra crackery crust. Um, the other advantages are that, you know, one of the most difficult parts I find for home cooks as far as Neapolitan or New York style, you know, any kind of round style pizza is launching it off the peel. You know, you, you pull the dough onto your peel, you top it, and by the time you're done topping it, it's stuck to the peel the good thing about this dough is that because it has that kind of dry surface, it doesn't stick at all. So it's really, really easy to slide around, slide on and off your peel and slide into the oven. But you do have a time problem. I mean, you cold ferment this thing right. for like three days, which is not atypical. I, I often do that for pizza too. Right. But then you roll it out and you got to mm-hmm. let it sit overnight. Right. So you, this is four days of planning for this pizza, right? It is uh, at least four days of planning. If you want it even better, you know, cold fermenting it for five days actually works better. But yeah, you know, you can just let your dough rise at room temperature, roll it out, and then let it cure overnight. And in fact, you can even bake it without curing it. It just, all these things kind of incrementally make it better. And it's rare that this happens, but I think that this recipe, anybody at home, if you follow the recipe, you're going to be able to make something that is as good as the best thin crust pizza places in Chicago. You know, it's one of these things where it's really technique, which you can't say the same for for Neapolitan pizza. Like a recipe is not going to teach you how to make Neapolitan pizza, right? That's going to take practice. It takes a fancy oven. Whereas this style of pizza, it's something that it it does well, like in chain restaurants. It's like a very sort of user-friendly recipe. So I think this is a case where if you're familiar with the style, um, and I think, you know, a lot of people from the Midwest who move out of the Midwest um, lament the fact that they can't get this pizza, um, you're going to be very happy with what this recipe produces. Well, there's one thing you haven't mentioned, which is you don't have to, after you roll it out, you, you don't really have to shape it, which is hard for people, right? I mean, that's getting it to the right size. It doesn't snap back on you, you know, oh, yeah. getting the edges right. I mean, that you, you sort of saw that problem, and you had a lovely description. You said the uh, the dough, once it's cured, you can flop it a little like an Acme portable hole from a Looney right. Tunes card series, <laughs> which really dates you, by the way. <laughs> I'm old enough to get it, but most people yeah. But you have this this round of dough that's leathery, that's easy to handle, and that, right. for me, is always the hardest part, is the right. last shaping before you top it and throw in the oven. I mean, it's it's almost, you know, it's as easy as, like, buying one of those pre-made doughs from the, you know, discs of, like, hard-baked dough from the supermarket, but it's going to be a lot better than that. Kenji... Thank you. Another food lab adventure. Thin crust (laughs) pizza from Chicago and the Midwest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's a New York Times columnist and the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats. 
He's also the author of The Walk, Recipes, and Techniques. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all of our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also learn about our latest cookbook, which is Milk Street Noodles. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.